Well, we have reached the fourth part of a series here on entitled Obeying God Before Men. And we have been in Acts chapters 3 to 5 where we have seen Peter and the apostles time and again defying the order of Israel's ruling authorities to speak no more in the name of Christ Jesus. Well, speak they did, despite the order of the king. And we've been thinking through this matter of obedience to God in the face of government overreach. There are times, aren't there, when we must obey God rather than men, no matter their station, no matter their power, no matter the consequences that come to us. God is our God. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We serve him. I think Luke, by revealing the details of this period in the early church, you know this, the writers of the Gospels, the writers of, of much of Scripture, wrote things that uh, were by the Holy Spirit upon their heart and mind. And Luke writes things. There were many things that he left out. So he is, again, by the Spirit, writing down what God willed in his word. And so we ask the question, why so much time is given to this section of the early church and the opposition that they faced in those early days and the way that the apostles in the early church responded to that persecution? I think he is seeking to teach us that there are times in our existence, in our lifetime here on this planet when the governing authorities must rightfully be resisted and even defied. The Bible's clear, isn't it, that we will suffer persecution for living a godly life. And Jesus taught us that it was through many tribulations that we would enter the kingdom of heaven. And as I said in my prayer, we really have had it good in some ways. Our challenges have not been what the challenges of a North Korean Christian are. Last Sunday, we looked at the matter of authority, and we unpacked these basic principles. All authority belongs to God. <clears throat> as the rightful owner of all, as almighty God, he is the God who is in possession of all authority, all things are his. He has absolute right to do with this world and with all that is in it. He can dispose of it as he pleases. And he has unlimited power to do it. He can bring to pass everything that he ordains. So all authority belongs to God. Secondly, we saw that God delegates his authority as he wills. All human authority is delegated authority. It's given from God, and it continues to belong to God, even though we are those put in position or, or people are, various levels uh, of, of, of using that delegated authority. So all authority belongs to God. God delegates his authority as he wills. Thirdly, all delegated authority is accountable to God because the, the, the authority that he delegates remains his. Therefore, authority comes to us and authority goes out to any given authority as a stewardship. 
It is given as a gift so that we might rule in God's place according to God's will. And then fourthly, all delegated authority is limited. It is limited to a particular office. That is to say, by way of example, that a father is given parental authority. That's his office. It's also given to a particular sphere. That is to say that parental authority only goes so far. You are a father of your children, not everybody's children. So it's limited in sphere, it's limited in office, and finally it's limited in extent. A father does not have a right to physically abuse his children. That is what... That is not what God wills a father to do, but instead to be a blessing to his children, not to exasperate them, but to encourage them and to exhort them and to train them up in righteousness. Now, having considered these matters, this issue of authority generally, today I want to address the issue of a Christian's duty to civil government. And we need to understand that we do have a duty to the civil government God has given a measure of authority to the state, and the question we'll look at this morning is, what is his will for us in relationship to the authority that he has granted to the state? It only makes sense, right, that we would get to the issue of, of, of defiance after we first understand what has God called us to. And so we'll leave the issue of rightful or what one man called faithful defiance till uh, for a couple of weeks here. We're going to spend the, most of our time this morning in Romans 13, but we're going to refer time and again to 1 Peter 2. There's much that is parallel in those two passages. I want you first to look with me at Romans chapter 12 and beginning in verse 17. Paul, you remember, has spent the first 11 chapters laboring to teach sound doctrine, particularly in relationship to the issue of justification by faith. We are declared not guilty on account of faith in Christ who lived a righteous life. That righteousness is then imputed to us through faith and thereby we are reconciled to God. We have peace with God And that peace ought to begin to spill over into other relationships. So he gets to chapter 12, and this is that classic word that Paul seems to use time and again in his epistles, where he he makes a break from all of his doctrinal teaching to say, therefore, in light of all those things, all that I talked about in chapters 1 through 11, now you need to live in light of those things this way. So he begins in verse 1 of chapter 12 saying, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Now that you have peace with God, that ought to reflect itself in the way we conduct ourselves with everybody and in every situation. We have peace with one another within the Christian community. And because we have peace with God, we should live peaceably with those outside the Christian community with the unbelieving world. And even beyond that, we should live 
peacefully in this world under governing authorities. That's the flow of Paul's logic in the first part of Romans 12. We're told in this chapter that evil is a reality in this world and so is good. In fact, when Paul gets to the last chapter of Romans, chapter 16 and verse 19, he says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And you'll see a similar thought in verse 9 here. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. How? How do you do that? By abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. And so when evil comes, what are the things that we're forbidden to do? Well, look at verse 17. He says, never paying back evil for evil to anyone. We don't pay back evil for evil. Look at verse 19. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. We don't take our own revenge. We don't return evil in kind. And then you look down at verse 21 and what does, well, uh, yeah, verse 21, what does he say? He says, do not be overcome by evil. So don't pay it back. Don't return in kind. Don't take your own revenge. And don't be overcome by evil. Don't let it roll over you. Don't let it steamroll you. You are to respond in the face of evil in a particular way. Now, look at what we're commanded to do. On the opposite side of all of those, what we're not to do are a set of what we ought to do. What are we commanded to do in the face of evil? Verse 17, we are to never pay back evil for evil to anyone, but we're to respect what is good in the sight of all men. Look down at verse 19. We're not to take our own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20 gives us even more specifics. If, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. I believe that's a reference to you're going to bring conviction to bear on the one who mistreats you when you do good to him in light of his mistreatment of you. And then we read, don't be overcome by evil, but instead you are to overcome evil with good. Now, as far as we are concerned, the centerpiece of that section as Paul comes into Romans 13 really is back in verse 18, and I haven't looked, we haven't pointed that out yet. Take a look at it. Verse 18, we have this principle that if possible, and it's not always possible, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, you're to be at peace with all men. In other words, beloved, you're a peacemaker. Your posture in this life is not to be at war with people. It is not to be a contender. It is not to be someone who's, a, uh, who, who's always contrary and pressing and intense. 
our posture as those who've been purchased by the blood of God or of Christ and brought into a peaceable relationship with God is that we are peacemakers in this life. We are those, as far as it depends upon us and as much as it is possible, we want to be at peace with all men. We're not those who are constantly asserting our rights and demanding that people meet them. We're a peaceable people. We're another centered people. We're a for you people. We're concerned about exalting others', others desires and others' needs and others' perspectives. We're, we're not those who are constantly clamoring for our piece of the pie. That's where Paul is as he comes into writing chapter 13. I want you for a moment to just imagine with me that there were no chapters and verses in your Bible, which is true. These things were added later. There's no hard break between verse 21 and chapter 13, verse 1. The question in Paul's thought is, what is this Christian response to evil going to be, particularly as it relates to maintaining peace with individuals? Yes, but also as we live in this world under the various authorities that God has placed over us. His very next thought is every person is to be in subjection to authority. That is important, beloved. We need to embrace this as a principle of life, not just as it relates to governing authorities, but to all authority. Well, let's read Romans 13 and verses 1 to 7, and then we're going to actually turn over and read a portion of 1 Peter as well. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear or for good behavior, but for evil. For do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now skip over to 1 Peter in chapter 2. Go to the right towards the back of your Bible. You're going to go past all of Paul's letters and past Hebrews, past the book of James and right into 1 Peter. If you get to John, you've gone too far. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. 
Note the similarities in these texts. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For such is the will of God that by doing good, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. Now you might want to put something in 1 Peter as we'll flip back time and again or make reference to it and you can be a Berean and check it all out. Peter's context is related to Paul's. Peter really is concerned about the glory of suffering mistreatment for doing what is right and good and thereby really enhancing your testimony before the world. That is how you silence ungodly men is that we lead lives that they can watch and they see the goodness of your life. They see that you are radically different than the way most people think particularly about authority, and in Peter's case, particularly about authority that's abusive. And we'll come back to that as we move along. Now, I want to make this blanket statement. Our Lord has called us to be model citizens, the best of citizens, the most exemplary, the most submissive, the most honorable, the most respectful citizens that we might adorn the gospel and glory of God. We are, beloved, alien sojourners in a foreign kingdom. And as foreigners, we live in this kingdom in a way to represent our king and his will. So let's go to Romans 13, and I want to show you in here there are three express commandments that are given. God's will is very clear in this text And we need to keep these things before us as we consider what it is to live in this world and under governing authorities. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 gives us our our first commandment, and that is that we are to submit yourself to civil authorities. You can write that down. You're to submit yourself to civil authorities. Romans 13, 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Every person, literally every soul. So much of the time, I've told you many times that when I went to seminary and started studying Greek, I began to realize that all those yous I'd been taking to refer to me personally were really y'alls that were talking to the church as a whole. Well, here, Peter Peter takes that magnifying glass and pulls it back and brings the, the heat of the sunlight to just come right to you as an individual. He says, every soul... This isn't a broadcast command. This is a very pointed directive. He has you and me right in the crosshairs. No one is exempt from what he's saying here. What is every individual to do? Well, he tells us you're to be in subjection. Back in 1 Peter, we read these words, submit yourselves. That, that is the same word. Submit yourself to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word is 
hupotasso in the Greek, you've heard it before. It's a military term meaning to, to rank yourself under. Those of you who've been in the military have an advantage over the rest of us. You get this to some degree just by virtue of having to rank yourself under somebody who is in higher authority. And I want to pause here and just give you some thoughts about submission generally. We're called to rank ourselves under authority. That is true for every person here. The first thing is this, authority, authority and submission is, is God's ordained means of structuring life. We talked about this last week, didn't we? It's a way of life, submission is, for every believer. Every sphere of life, we are in a posture with a disposition to be submissive. Secondly, the argument of the scriptures is that submission in every context is a matter ultimately of submission to the Lord himself. And I do want to show you this. We'll just take a second to do it, but if you flip over to the book of Ephesians, somewhere between your marker in Peter and your marker in Romans, you'll find the book of Ephesians. And if you look at chapter 5, it just became, becomes really, really plain. The point we're making is this, that in every context, ultimately submission is a matter of submission not so much to the, to, the, to the human being or to the governing entity. It is submission, first and foremost, before the Lord. Ephesians 5.21, we, the church, are commanded to be subject, note this, to one another in the fear of Christ. I'm thinking about Christ as I submit to you. Notice verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. How? As unto the Lord. Check, check down to, to chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Look at chapter 6 and verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ. Do you see that it's time after time after time he keeps saying, look, when it comes to the issue of submission, it's not so much about the specific earthly authority, the delegated authority, that, that really is a springboard to the greater submission, which is to Christ every time. This is the will of God. That's the way we need to be thinking when it comes to submission. And it's unto the Lord. In fact, again, 1 Peter 2.1, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So, beloved, think about it. Submission then becomes a matter of worship, doesn't it? Because the submission, the attitude of my heart, manifests something of my attitude toward the Lord himself. So authority is God's means of structuring life. It's ultimately a means of submitting to the Lord himself. Thirdly, submission, rightful submission, is manifested in both attitude and action. 
and we all know this, particularly if you've raised kids or ever been a kid, and I'm assuming that's everybody in here, okay? Look, it is possible to obey somebody in authority without submission, isn't it? No? There's no amen out there. Nobody can relate to that statement. You have never grumbled under your breath at having to do what you've been called to do. We all have. It is possible to do this. You need to understand this. I need to understand this. It is not enough to merely do what you are commanded. You are to do it willingly and gladly and humbly with an attitude of this is worship unto the Lord. The standard is way up here. It's not in shuffling your way to the woodpile to get wood for your wife. It's in doing it out of love for her and ultimately out of love for Christ. And so you bring in with both arms, biceps flexing. Why? Because I want to honor the Lord in this thing and I want to love my wife. Submission is a heart matter. And this is going to be so important when it comes down to actually having to defy the government. Because the attitude of the heart does not change. We should always maintain a heart attitude that is peaceable and honoring toward the authorities over us. There's one more thing I want to say about submission, and that is this. This also is critical when it comes to the issue of the state, and that is that submission may include obedience, but it does not always include obedience. They are not equated necessarily. There will be times when faithfulness to Christ means you're going to have to defy the state. When Caesar arrogantly assumes authority that God has not given him, then the government may be, and in some cases must be, refused. When the government insists that you be vaccinated, they are out of their lane. They are functioning, aren't they, outside of their delegated authority. And in that case, you may disobey them, but you may not. You may choose to obey them in that situation. When the magistrates endorse a one-child policy like China did, and they're suffering for it now, but when they instituted that one-child policy that required you to abort any child after your first one, then you must disobey the governing authority. There's, there's no discussion there whatsoever. And so we've established this principle, haven't we? The law of the higher authority. When the law of the land collides with the law of God, we go with God every time and without question. In other words, this is not a blind obedience that's commanded in this text. There is no absolute authority but God and he is the one that we obey above all. But we must, in the midst of all of that, maintain a posture of honor and respect. All right. Now, the text continues. To whom or to what are we to submit? Look down again at 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, that word governing is, is an interpretation of sorts, and it's a right interpretation but the text literally says, to the authorities being above him. 
every soul is to be in subjection to the governings being, being above you. Well, how many authorities has God placed above you in this life? A lot, probably. A number of them. There's no explicit mention of the civil authorities in this verse. And like I said, it can be implied from the things that are said later that Paul definitely has in mind here the governing authorities, the civil authorities, but it is broader than that and it helps us to think that way, that what he's really calling us to here is a submission to all of the authorities that God has placed over me in this life. We're to be subject So again, Christians are not contentious and we're not rebellious. We're not anti-authoritarian zealots. That's BLM. That's Antifa. That is not the body of Christ. Some people disdain a submissive posture and that's not good. As though somehow it were weak and it were cowardly. It is neither. Calvin captured this clearly. Quote, there are indeed always some tumultuous spirits. I love that. There are indeed always some tumultuous spirits who believe that the kingdom of Christ cannot be sufficiently elevated unless all earthly powers be abolished and that they cannot enjoy the liberty given by him unless they shake off every yoke of human subjection. End quote. Beloved, we don't want to be tumultuous spirits. We are a people at rest in our God and at peace in this world, though it is not a peaceful world. We are at peace in him. Now, I want you to note that to this point, Paul has made no qualifications at all, no exceptions. He's given us no way out. There's nothing here about party affiliation. There's there's nothing whether you voted for this particular individual or party or not. There's no room for that sort of he's not my president mindset. There's nothing here like that. There's nothing here about our governor's competence or his morality or his wisdom or whether he he can at the same time command us to wear masks while he goes out to dinner for $500 plate, you know, I get it. It lacks integrity and it makes you grumpy. But we need to hold that in check. We need to be careful. There's nothing here about how the government came to power, whether it was a democracy or a republic or a monarchy or a dictatorship, whether the rule is benevolent or whether it's tyrannical. There's none of that in this so far. So whatever our station, whatever our occupation, whatever our status, we are to be submissive to all authorities that God has placed over us, and that includes the civil authorities. Now, that brings us to the second commandment. We find it in verse 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Pay your taxes. This is always appropriate as we approach April. Pay your taxes. We're still under that. Every person of of verse 1, he calls every one of us to pay our taxes. There are no qualifications, again, of how competently the government uses the money they collect, whether they use it towards moral ends, God-honoring ends, whether they patch the pothole on your street, 
And trust me, I live in Colfax, and they do not. <laughs> they may spend that money on the support of abortion and transgender surgeries. You don't answer to God for that. They do. They will. You just follow the commandment that God has given you, and that is to pay your taxes. This is a huge issue. I'm going to guess that tax fraud is probably the most widely spread crime in the United States. The IRS, I looked it up, the IRS estimates that one trillion, one trillion dollars of taxes are evaded every year. That's a thousand billion. That's a lot of money. Forbes magazine says that $5.2 billion last year was returned to people who filed fraudulent tax returns. Listen, Jesus paid his taxes and so did his followers. You can see that in Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. Governments are God's appointed servants doing God's appointed work, whether they realize it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, and therefore they must be funded. And, and some of us have got to get over our sort of cheap ways. Everything in life costs money, does it not? There is no free lunch. You never get to, be, to, to get benefits from things without paying a cost. There's one time that you get benefit and one place where you get benefit apart from cost, where is it? Yeah, from Christ, from God, who has graciously given to you and you cannot give back in return. Salvation is by grace, but life on this planet is not by grace. And, and, and I'm fond of telling people, don't be afraid to talk about money because God loves to pry our fists free of that of that, that, that thing that tends to dominate us and compete with him. You cannot live in good conscience, beloved, if you are cheating God on this thing. Ministry costs money. That's true in the church, and that is true for God's ministers in the civil government. We may not love the way they spend it. We may reprioritize it. We would want to do something different ourselves, but they have been appointed by God for the common good and therefore, we need to, to pay the money that, that we owe. This is one way that we demonstrate, isn't it, that God has authority over, over us through governing authorities is by rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So, we live in subjection to civil government. We pay our taxes. Look again at verse 7. This is our third commandment. We're to hold civil authorities in high regard. He says, render to all what is due them. And note the end of the verse, fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. In other words, Paul is dealing here with our attitude toward governing authorities. And this is very challenging for us, isn't it? We may be among many the, the most law-abiding citizens, and yet lots of us are still challenged at this level that we, we do it uh, uh, unsettled and with a, with a grumpy attitude. We're called to fear to whom fear is due. That encompasses everything in the Bible, that word from awe to terror. And I don't think he wants to 
to tell us to be in terror of the government. He, in fact, he's going to tell us in a minute that if we follow the rules, for the most part, the government ought to leave us alone. In fact, they should, they should praise us for that very thing. So I don't think he's speaking of terror here, but he's talking about respect. We are to be a respectful people toward those authorities that are over us. We're to esteem them and to hold them in high regard. He uses a second word, which is the word honor. This is a financial term that that refers to fixing a price or a value on something. A high value. It's to prize or to hold in high esteem. I think he's really using these in kind of a synonymous way. He's trying to stack one term on top of another to say, look, you ought to have a genuine, heartfelt respect for those who are in positions of power. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this sort of thing is not popular in our day. This is the kind of thing that has gone the way of the buffalo. We have kids calling their teachers by their first name. We have kids talking back to parents. We have, we have athletes mouthing off to officials. We've, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Parents at the table, bad-mouthing pastors. You've, you've just got, I know you never do it, but it, some people do. And, and, and so this kind of thing, we need to be very careful. I hope that all the conviction of the world falls on you right now. If, if you've been guilty of this sort of thing, it is time to zip it and to get that right so so that what comes out of your mouth instead is honor and respect. Fox News will not help you. It really won't. In fact, much of the aim is to provoke other things in you. There's a lot of fomenting. No, I don't watch CNN. Don't, you know. I can see it on your faces. <laughs> Have you known me for all these years? And yet, no. what I want you to notice is this: Paul goes way further than some kind of kind of begrudging compliance, doesn't he? And the Bible has a lot to say about honor. We're to honor God. We're to honor our parents. We're to honor the elderly. We're to honor pastors, and we're to honor one another. We're to honor rulers. We're to honor the institution of marriage and the marriage bed. There are all kinds of things that God has called us. Again, this, we're to be honoring people. We lift up, and we regard others highly. We, we, we have a humble posture about us. Beloved, can I ask you honestly this morning, do you have a heart that honors the king? Because if you don't, you're not honoring the king, right? All right. So we're to submit to governing authorities. We're to pay our taxes. We're to hold the civil authorities in high regard. And I want to give you quickly in the time that we have five reasons why we must live. And I'm going to give these to you because Paul gives them to us. Why we must live in glad submission to government. And there is some overlap with things that were said last week. So I'm not going to develop some of these points too much. But repetition is the mother of learning, so here we go. And I want you to pay close attention as we go through this to the word for or therefore. That's Paul's way of building his argument as to why we must live in glad submission to governing authorities. Number one is this, and we find it in verse one again, that all authority belongs to God and is delegated by God. This is just straight review. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There's the commandment. 
for, or this is why, for there is no authority except from God. Jesus has it all. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. All authority is his. And by divine decree, he, he spreads it to every sphere of life, to the family, to the church, to the workplace, to the civil society. God, as we said last week, is a God of government. He is a God of rule and order. He is not a God of anarchy. He has given his rule on this earth to be mediated by men, and that's an amazing thing. And men are responsible to mediate that rule as God wills, and at the same time, what God wills and what God has decreed will ultimately come to pass even when the authority that he's placed in power doesn't do what he wants him to do. Do we think for two seconds that God's sovereignty is threatened by ungodly rulers? That somehow God is wringing his hands in heaven at the way the United States is, is crumbling? Is that your God? How did God deal with Nebuchadnezzar who grew proud in his own heart? What does Psalm 2 say God does when all the authorities sort of huddle together to say, hey, let's, let's check off this God thing and all of his rules? What does it say? He who sits in the heaven, what? Laughs. It is disconcerting when you see evil Being, being elevated and, 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 and legislated, and uh, I, I'm right there with you. But friends, comfort yourself in the truth and do not panic. Let's live after God's will and trust him for the rest, shall we? So civil authorities have been ordained by God and they're, they have a delegated authority. Number two, Civil authorities, therefore, established by God. The word literally is ordained again. They're appointed, they're assigned, they're ordained by God, and those which exist are established by God. And again, we have to work all this out, don't we? Because we think, we think in terms of government and all law and all that stuff that this is all a government for the people, by the people. We vote and that. And I encourage you to do all that stuff, but you've got to hang on to the other end of this thing, which is understanding that every government, whether the guy in office is your guy or not your guy, that's been ordained by God. And there's a time where you have to say, the will of the Lord be done. And we haven't even known difficulty yet, have we? Really? You think about some other country. How would you like to live under Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il or Un or Il? I can't keep it all straight. I don't want to live under the man. We should pray for North Korea more, shouldn't we? We ought to stand in those people's shoes if they have them and pray for them and pray for their leader and pray that the word of God might hold sway and that, I know, I don't know how either, but somehow God might show them compassion and mercy and that missionaries would be willing to go in even at the cost of their lives to testify to the gospel of freedom, the gospel of Christ. 
How tragic it is when we get all grumbly and we forget. <laughs> we forget that almost, have you ever noticed the lines of people who are coming here? There's a reason for that. We are blessed beyond measure, my friends. And this text is clear that every government that has ever existed on earth exercises its authority because God has established it. And every ruler in the history of, of mankind has only ruled by the sovereign appointment of God. And that was God's point to Nebuchadnezzar, till you, get, till you humble yourself, till you figure this out, I'm just going to depose you for a bit. And so God is absolutely sovereign, not somewhat, but absolutely sovereign over who rules and when they rule and how long they rule and over whom they rule. Every single authority that is in place has been ordained by God and every single one of them will answer to God for the authority that they've been given. It is not our task to bring vengeance upon evil authorities. God will do it. And sometimes, oftentimes, he will, he will use us, he will use a, a military, he will use all kinds of people to bring about his ends. You, you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in his own conscience was convicted that Hitler needed to, 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 uh, to be deposed. And he ended up paying a price for that. And there have been Christians throughout history who have faced those tough questions, and you and I have not faced them. You mean Hitler? You mean Pol Pot? You mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you see, it brings us face to face with something. That, that may raise some really hard questions for us. That may challenge some unwarranted presuppositions that we hold about God, and it, it may expose our proud assumptions that somehow if we were in charge of the world, we could really do this much better, that if we were in charge and we had authority, the world would be as it ought to be. But friend, do you, do you understand that when you assert those things, you do so foolishly as though somehow God didn't know what is right and good and best. I had a theology professor challenge me on the first day of class. I'll never forget it. When he made the statement that this is the best possible world that could possibly exist because God is in charge. You can go home and eat your turkey sandwich and think about that, okay? We read later in this, down in verse four, that these authorities are referred to as God's ministers. Verse 6, his servants. And again, that's not because they know God or because they love God or because they follow the law of God. It's because in pursuing their own desires, ultimately they are established by God to work out God's will. Now, what are these authorities to do? And we will develop this more in a couple of weeks, but there are two broad ends to government that are given in our text. Here's, here's the duty of Caesar. Caesar is to, one, restrain evil in society by punishing evildoers. 
to restrain evil in society by punishing evildoers, and secondly, to promote good in society by protecting good doers or the doers of good. Look at verse 3. For rulers, for, there's another for, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. That's what the government is supposed to be. For the people and for their good, for the common good and for righteousness. But if you do what is evil, then you need to be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God and an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Peter writes this same job description for civil authorities. More briefly, he says that civil authorities exist for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And I think it's very important at this point to just acknowledge this, that neither Peter nor Paul are speaking in a, in a very narrow sense about the task of government. He's speaking broadly about the task of government. He, he, he's not here limiting its scope. He's not saying, in other words, well, he is limiting its scope. He's not limiting it so narrowly that, that they, they do nothing else. He's not saying, for instance, that building roads or, or uh, uh, printing money or establishing the national defense is outside the realm of government. They can only punish evildoers and praise those who do. No. He's, he's referring here to the common good again. He's speaking broadly and generally about the proper role for government that it is to promote the common good and protect the righteous. It is to prevent evil by punishing the wicked. It does that on a national scale, and to some degree it is involved in that on even an international scale as the government is charged with protecting the, 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 the population that it governs. This is God's will. You'll note in there that Paul writes, they do not bear the sword for nothing. That is to say, they, they come to administer justice. Go back to chapter 12 again. Remember when we set the scene? We don't exact revenge. We are not those who return evil for evil. That's not our job. The one who does that, the one who's been assigned to do that, are the governing authorities. This is why we cannot, must not, defund the police. That would be foolish. This is the task of the civil authorities. This is their primary responsibility. Now the question comes to mind, and again, we'll deal with it in two weeks, but what happens when the civil authorities fail to fulfill their God-given responsibilities? That's a good question, a necessary question. And the fact is, if you think about it for a couple of moments, you, you might think, has a government like this ever existed? Not at the hands of men, it hasn't. Worldly governments are comprised of fallen men and they often are opposed to what is good and right and they do precisely the opposite by exalting what is evil and promoting wicked people while punishing the righteous. 
And I would say this to you just as a starter. We should expect that. We should expect, anticipate that worldly governments would go about their governing in worldly ways. Doesn't make it right. But we should expect to be persecuted. Peter put it this way, arm yourselves with this purpose. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Peter says, look, you you need to anchor this clearly in your perspective about life. The government is not going to do for you what you want all the time. They are not going to to praise Christians who sacrificially give of their time and talent for the propagation of the gospel. You are living in the millennium, if that's the way you're thinking. That's not now. Jesus is not on his throne ruling with a rod of iron. He's at the right hand of the Father. That time is coming. As I said earlier, there is a perfect government coming where righteousness will reign, where evil will be punished, and that's why we pray, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. But in the meantime, when that kingdom has not yet arrived in full bloom, what are we to do? Well, we need to arm ourselves with a purpose to live submissively and to suffer. Remember that from Philippians? We're not that far removed. It's been granted to you, what? To be saved, and we say, oh, thank you, Jesus, and to suffer for his name's sake. Oh. What was Jesus' experience of life on earth before the governing authorities? How did it go for the prophets throughout the history How did it go for the early church? Friends, do we think ourselves so privileged that somehow we could evade all of that? That somehow in this country, under this constitution, things should go swimmingly for us because we've named the name? You see, when the government abuses its authority and exercises its power corruptly, life gets super challenging for us. And we know this. We went through COVID. We began to see the challenge in this. And that was just a a foretaste of misery divine. You know what I mean? there, There could be something that we ought to really expect probably going forward that's far, far heavier than that. And yet we also need to confess that generally speaking, Our government has carried this out over the years to one degree or another so that life here, we do live in law and order. We're not panicked about walking down the street. Most of us will even do it at night. And and we have had three meals a day and we have not been asked to bow before and we have not been made to abort children and we, we have not had to face those challenges. Don't feel guilty about that. Rejoice and give thanks to God. But we do, that does make us an easy mark, doesn't it? It makes us a target. When things change, how will we do? All authorities are from God. Everyone has been appointed by him. And they are for his purposes and we will suffer. 
And we remember, don't we, 1 Peter 2, where we're told that Christ suffered, leaving us an example to follow in his steps, who while being reviled did not revile in return, while suffering he uttered no threats, but he what? Man, do we cling to this. Do you cling to this? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That is God's call on your life and mine. Number three, to resist civil authorities is to resist the sovereign will of God himself. And I know that that needs to be qualified and it will be, but I want you to to, to hear this, to live a life Maintain a posture of resistance before governing authorities is to resist the sovereign will of God himself. There's a sense in which this is so straightforward, it needs no, that's verse 2, right? It needs no explanation. God takes his authority, he delegates it. Those to whom it's delegated are to live out the authority he's given within their office, within their sphere, and to the extent that he's given them If they fail to do that, they're responsible to him. And and this just makes sense, right? That to resist the authority that God has placed over us at at any level is to resist God himself. This is like when my parents would leave and they would hire the the next door neighbor lady to, to, to be our babysitter. And dad would always gather us kids together in the living room and he would say something like this, Dave, look, Cindy's in charge, and whatever uh, he tells us to, you obey what she says, you are to listen to her as if she were me. And if I didn't, I would be defying not only Cindy, but I would be defying the delegated authority for the evening and my father as well, wouldn't I, in that defiance? i got to quote Calvin again, quote, For since it pleases God thus to govern the world, he who attempts to invert the order of God and thus, resist, and thus to resist God himself despises his power. Since to despise the providence of God, who is the founder of civil power, is to carry on war with him. You get the point. Government is God's gracious idea. He ordained it, and you defy those governing authorities, you defy God himself with this caveat that if the government calls you to do things that God has told you you must do, then you must defy them. In other words, if if Cindy commanded me to beat my sisters, right? Do you ever have a babysitter do something like that? I hope not. If Cindy had commanded me to beat my sisters, well, I know the will of my father. I cannot do it. Although at 10, I'd, anyway, you, you, know, you know the idea. We're given two more motivations. Number four, to resist civil authorities is to be subjected to punishment. The point is simple enough. Listen, uh, you, 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 you resist the government. You open yourself to all kinds of punishment from the government. Notice verse 4, if you do what's evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And by sword there, he's referring to the death penalty. 
You shouldn't be opposed to the death penalty. I hope you're not. That's a sign of a healthy government. And there are a lot of people who think, well, didn't God say do not murder? Yeah, that's, that's not murder. In Genesis 9, and I forget what verse, maybe, maybe 6, God gives, God says what? That, that if someone sheds blood, then by man his blood will be shed. And, and all the way through, that's what Paul is getting at here. Listen, if you do evil, the government has a sword, and it's been given that sword to carry out the will of God. And again, think of how blessed we've had it. How many rulers over the course of history have put to death people who do right and good? Many. We've never lived in that. You don't fear today that your car is just going to be pulling over, pulled over and you're going to be beheaded by an officer uh, for driving 55. Or for some other reason, for having a Bible, for opening your home to Jews during World War II. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this, because the sentence against evil is not executed quickly or speedily. The hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. And that's what we see in our midst, isn't it? You know, if, if, if it's only a misdemeanor to steal up to $1,000, then let us go steal. We see that in our culture. We can see the truth of God's word here And any orderly and peaceful society necessitates law and order, and we should live for those things. That's what the government has been tasked with by God, and we need to be cooperative to an extent. Robert Culver writes this. It's a great quote. He says, what must not be lost sight of is that unpleasant as is the task of the jailer and the use of the whip, the cell, the noose, the guillotine, these things stand behind the stability of a civilized society and they stand there necessarily for God has declared it so in harmony with reality rather than with apostate sociological opinion. In other words, mankind who rail against God, they assume what's behind all these all these uh, movements with, with critical race theory and all of that stuff is this idea that man is essentially good and, and we, need to, we need to oppress the oppressors because they've made wreck of this world. If we can just defund the police, if we can just get every white guy out of office, you see, then from the ground swell up, the oppressed will come and we will realize utopia. That's nonsense. What we'll end up with is another group of people on top, but they will be equally as oppressive if, in fact, there's been oppression. And there has in some circles, but it's not what they paint it to be. Government with its coercive powers, says Culver, is a social necessity, but one determined by the creator, not the statistical tables of some university social research staff. No society can successfully vote fines, imprisonments, corporal and capital punishment away permanently. The society which tries has lost touch with the realities of man. That is a very profound statement. 
government must inflict wrath on evildoers and bring justice to bear. And much of the crime that we endure in this country is because the state has failed to do just that. Finally, number five, to resist civil authorities is to resist one's own conscience before God. That's to say, as a Christian, if you choose to live that sort of rebel and defiant life, you're just going to go toe-to-toe with the authorities that are above you. You will not be mastered by anyone. There are no strings on you, said Pinocchio, and many people, frankly. He says, if you do that, your conscience is going to be hot, or it should be. You know that it's right to live submissively before the authorities which come from God. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 18 and 19. This is right on the heels of calling, calling us to submit to the king. He says, Peter tells, tells servants to submit, but not to reasonable masters. He says, you need to submit even to those who are unreasonable. And he writes this, you are to treat them with all respect, not only to those that are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the... For the sake of conscience before God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You see, your conscience testifies that you have a moral responsibility to be a model citizen and to live submissively before the authorities, to pay your taxes, to treat our leaders with respect. We have what one commentator called spiritual instinctiveness. That disobedience and disrespect for government is wrong. And when we suffer for doing what's right, our consciences will affirm us that we have been walking in the path that Christ has called us to. Suffering, leaving us an example that we would follow in his footsteps. So by way of summary, very quickly, what are we to do? We're to be in submission to governing authorities. We're to pay our taxes. We're to honor and fear those authorities. Why are we to do this? Well, because all authority is God, is God's, and he possesses it, he delegates it. And secondly, because every governing authority is sovereignly appointed by God. Third, because rebelling against the government is rebelling against God himself who put them in power. Fourth, because resisting authorities is a cause for fear of punishment. And finally, because your conscience tells you that it's right before God for you to be in subjection. I want you to return with me as we close here to to the book of Titus. And without any commentary, just with all these things fresh in your mind, we're going to reread these short verses. Titus in chapter 3. It is in the context of adorning the gospel that Paul writes this, remind them. That's all we've done today. You've heard this passage preached on probably many times. Remind them because we all need it to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, 
demonstrating all gentleness to all men. There's a, there's a good refrigerator magnet right there. All gentleness to all men. Why? Because things are different for us now. We, we used to be foolish and disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What's he saying? Simply this. We live under grace. We did not receive the grace of God because we deserved it and because we'd been good and because we'd acted rightly. No. And the parallel is we live among people who still are operating on that works basis. Listen, we're Christians. We operate on the basis of grace. We understand that we will suffer in this life coming under the authorities that God has placed under us. But as we do that, as we suffer for doing what is right and not doing what is wrong, we will make a bold testimony to the world that we have been changed and that the church of Jesus Christ is different. And the gospel, the power of the gospel will be put on display because we're not complainers in this life. We're thankful in this life. We're not railing against everybody and everything. No. We give praise to God and we seek to love others in the name of Jesus. We bring the gospel and the truth of the peace of God which comes through faith in Christ. And what? The whole, the whole deal is just turned on its, on its head Praise God for this passage. It's not natural to us. Let's pray that God might help us as the music team comes forward. Lord, help us to put off disobedience and rebellion and bitterness and contempt. Help us to put off cheating. Lord, may we turn from turning in deceitful tax returns. May we put off our disrespectful speech and dishonorable attitudes. Lord, may we instead be like Lord Jesus. May we walk in his pattern of life as submissive and obedient and humble and grateful and honorable, that we would be ready for every good work, that we would be model citizens, that, that Lord, all of our heart attitudes and all that our hands find to do would be evidence that Christ has a hold of our life. May we live before men in such a way as to image Christ. And may our submissive disposition toward every authority that you have established speak loudly to what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, in light of your will to walk wisely before men in this world, that we might make much of Christ, that we might make much of the saving gospel so that sinners might be saved and that you might be our glorified king forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen.